KPBS On Demand is supported by Under the Sun Foundation, presenting the Candlewood Arts Festival in Borrego Springs, featuring temporary public art projects that engage community and place. March 23rd. More at candlewoodartsfestival.org. The impact of the Texas shooting on schools and on mental health. Repetitive exposure to these types of traumatic events can create by virtue vicarious trauma. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Heineman. This is KPBS Midday Edition. COVID cases increase again after a short period of decline. It's unpredictable, and that's what we have to keep in mind. That's why we need to pull out all the stops. Encrypted messages between government employees may run afoul of the Public Records Act. And the loss of parts of the Voting Rights Act affects more than the ballot box. That's ahead on Midday Edition. First, the news. KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Osher Lifelong Learning Institute, hosting an open house to learn about the upcoming classes and seminars, member benefits, and meet the volunteer leadership team. Saturday, March 30th. Registration at extendedstudies.ucsd.edu slash O-L-L-I. The FBI has joined the investigation into the massacre at Robb Elementary in Texas. Authorities say all 21 victims killed, 19 children and two adults, were shot in the same classroom. A spokesperson for the Texas Department of Public Safety says the shooter, armed with a rifle, pushed past security officers at the school and barricaded himself inside the classroom. The names of the victims, mostly 9- and 10-year-olds, are beginning to be released. This mass shooting comes only 10 days after the racist massacre at a Buffalo supermarket, and it's made many Americans of all races wonder, how safe are we, our families, our kids, in our daily lives? Joining me is Bob Mueller, Interim Director of Student Attendance, Safety, and Well-Being for the San Diego County Office of Education. And Bob, welcome to the program. Thank you. Good morning. When news of a mass shooting breaks somewhere in the country, does the San Diego Office of Education have a procedure it follows? Well, we immediately put together resources for our school leaders to use with their children and families to provide support. We also remind them of the training resources that we have available on this topic. And are counselors available for kids today? Yes, I would say all school districts and charter schools are sensitive to the fact that children are going through difficult times, and even probably staff members are having some difficulty today. The death of 19 children certainly shakes you to the core. What kinds of security measures are in place on school campuses today? Can you give us an idea? I think there's a pretty wide variety. It ranges. Some schools may not have dedicated security personnel. They may have volunteers or school staff that are assigned duties as children are coming in and out or on the playground. Typically, middle schools and high schools may have some campus supervisory staff. And then some districts also have school resource officers that are dedicated either to a specific high school or to a number of schools. Considering the news from Texas and other school shootings that we've all lived through, are there additional security measures that the county is considering putting into place at schools? 
Well, I think the first thing I have to state is that the County Office of Education doesn't actually operate our school districts and charter schools. Each of those is governed by their own school board, and they make their own decisions related to security. What we try to do is ensure that school districts and charter schools have the information they need to make good decisions and training really focused on prevention. Security at the gate is great to try to prevent someone coming in who may be a danger, but prevention to address the concern before it gets to the gate is really where we're focused. I know that many school districts have been training children on how to respond to possible events like this, but how do you balance preparing school children for possible danger and not scaring them any more than they already are? Children need to feel safe at school in order to learn and really to enjoy their childhood. In the wake of the death of 19 kids in a school classroom, it seems hollow to say that these active shooting events on schools are relatively rare. There are about 50 million school kids in the country and thousands and thousands of schools. So we do know these events happen. They can happen anywhere. Um, We're not immune to them and we all need to prepare. But at the same time, we need to be sure that the training that we're providing to kids is developmentally appropriate and also sensitive to kids that have already experienced trauma. So we do provide training to school leaders to help them train their staff on active shooter responses and also on how to create developmentally appropriate training for children. Bob, as someone involved in safety and well-being for students at the San Diego County Office of Education, what would you say to San Diego parents who are shaken by the Texas school shooting and worried about their kids in school? The first thing I would say to them is hug your kids and tell them that they're safe and that you and their school are working to keep them safe, that we want them to let their parents know and their school administrators know if they ever have a concern about another person in their school. And that doesn't mean that somebody is actually threatening to cause harm, but maybe they're just hurting. You know, maybe they feel bullied. Maybe they feel trapped or angry. We need to be able to respond early to the things that lay beneath that pathway that could lead to a violent act. In San Diego County, we have been training schools on school threat assessment teams, multidisciplinary teams to evaluate threats. We've worked really closely with our district attorney's office and law enforcement community. We have great protocols in place that also involve our law enforcement coordination center, which the FBI is a part of. So we have really good pieces in place, but all of it really relies on people to recognize when someone is suffering, hurting, or saying or doing things that are of concern and reporting them so that we can assess them. I've been speaking with Bob Mueller. He's with the San Diego County Office of Education. And Bob, thank you so much. You're very welcome. The horror and fear generated by mass shootings can do some real damage to the way we think about our daily activities. Sending kids to school, going to the supermarket can suddenly become very scary. How do we go about normal life when things no longer feel normal? Dr. Michelle Carcel is a licensed psychologist with a practice in La Jolla. She's one of the media representatives for the San Diego Psychological Association, and she joins us now. And Michelle Carcel, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. Now, unfortunately, you must have a lot of experience dealing with the emotional aftermath of mass shootings. What kinds of things do you find people experiencing? 
When it comes to these types of mass shootings and these types of traumatic events, uh, we find a spike in various um, areas of mental health. Uh, specifically, people who have had previous trauma can tend to have a recurrence of PTSD symptoms, um, specifically just uh, by virtue of seeing these uh, tragedies and witnessing these tragedies, um, there's an element of triggering effect that happens to people uh, who have these uh, underlying uh, symptoms. And uh, for people just in general, uh, just exposure, repetitive exposure to these types of traumatic events um, can create by virtue of vicarious trauma. And that um, typically vicarious trauma we see mainly with caregivers and, you know, people, for example, firefighters, doctors, uh, mental health providers, healthcare workers that are in the thick of the situation. They're not directly in a, a victimized by the trauma, but they're in the situation in some way. However, repetitive exposure can also in a community create this type of vicarious trauma. And it's very difficult because we do see this bringing up quite a bit of feelings for um, just people in general. How do you talk to children about incidents like this? It's very important before we talk to children to make sure that we identify our own emotions. Sometimes parents uh, just go into a conversation without recognizing how they're doing and how they're processing. And by virtue, they can be anxious and then pass on that anxiety to their kids. Uh, so we don't want to do that. We want to make sure that first and foremost, that before we have any conversations with our children, we recognize where we are. Where is our you know, mental health at this point? Where's, how are we feeling? Are we feeling compassion, fatigue, burnout? Are we feeling trauma from this? Is it triggering us? And then making sure that we take the steps to self-care and to get to a point where we feel comfortable with the conversation that we have with our kids and any potential reactions. So at that point, once you know we do check in and feel uh, that level of stability, that we're able to use developmentally appropriate language and address the situations with the children based on that. What I mean by that is um, if you have younger kids, to keep it simple, to keep it basic, um, letting them know they're safe. I know we might not feel that way. These events cause us to feel like we're unsafe. But statistically speaking, this is not a probability as much as a possibility. Um, and letting them know that their adults are there for them, that the school is there for them um, as a parent or as a caregiver, making sure that you review the protocol of the school to explain it to the child so they know um, and asking them how they feel about it and just identifying emotions for those, especially the younger kids. This was their peer group for this latest event, um, this latest tragedy. They, they may have different feelings about that. Um, for middle uh, and older kids, middle-aged kids, um, uh, I should say, uh, you know, in the uh, teenage, young preteens, and then teens, that's a different group. Um, they're going to have more feelings about it. They're likely going to want to be more active about it. They may express more anger, more frustration, um, more fear, more anxiety. These are things that you want to make sure that you discuss more openly. Um, and again, asking questions, asking how they view it, uh, asking if they understand the protocols in their school. And at that point, too, looking for observational cues uh, sometimes, you know, adults and children, we're not always the best at identifying our emotions effectively. So if you see that a child, uh, especially if they're younger, they, they don't have that capacity maybe to identify sadness in that way. Um, if they're having sleep disturbance or if they're de demonstrating mood shifts or mood changes, we want to be on top of that and make sure that we're jumping in as soon as possible. 
Today is not only the day after the horrific shooting in Texas, but it's also the anniversary of the murder of George Floyd. Now, black Americans talk about the stress of being black, of having to face the threat of violence and systemic racism every day. Is that feeling of being a target all the time seeping into America's larger consciousness because of mass shootings? I would think so. So while I don't have the statistical data in front of me, um, there is certainly a uh, longitudinal effect that comes from being uh, victimized consistently in especially uh, targeted groups. And uh, with African-Americans in particular, uh, the Black community has undergone such trauma, such extensive trauma since the, the beginning of this country, so to speak, um, as far as the United States. We have to acknowledge that with that also, again, comes that vicarious trauma where there's numbness, um, there's burnout, there's uh, hopelessness, there's quite significant emotions that are attached to this. Um, and yeah, it, it really, it can be quite impactful for certain groups of people. Um, and, and I want to extend that to, uh, you know, people who have been victims of violence in any, you know, race or, or gender um, identity. So, And if people in general are feeling anxious and disoriented by the violence that can seem to surround us, what steps should they take to regain a sense of control in their lives? There are different things that really help create a positive mental outlook. Um, part of it is limiting our social media, limiting our exposure to television. Um, you know, it can be good to be up to date with certain things, but unfortunately, this bombardment and continuous bombardment um, can also cause uh, more exacerbation of symptoms. So limiting some of these things and instead participating in more family activities, participating in more outdoors activities. Um, we find that actually nature is a wonderful uh, way to help us stabilize. So going out in nature, taking a walk, taking a hike, engaging in exercise that also creates a, a wonderful neurotransmitter transmitters, activations in our brain, and uh, making sure that we're just continuously noticing where we are and working on those coping skills. That is very important when we're going through uh, something like this. I've been speaking with Dr. Michelle Carcel, a licensed psychologist with a practice in La Jolla. Dr. Carcel, thank you so much. Thank you. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Cavanaugh.
Parents of San Diego Unified School children were notified this week that indoor masking requirements may be reinstated if certain risk levels are reached. The plan comes as a response to rising case numbers, both in the community at large and specifically within schools. Last week, more than 1,000 positive COVID cases among students and staff were reported across the district. And with the busy summer months almost here, it seems likely that cases will continue to rise across San Diego. Exactly how that will impact health and safety guidelines across the region, however, remains to be seen. Joining me once again with a COVID update is Dr. Eric Topol, director of the Scripps Research Translational Institute in La Jolla. And Dr. Topol, welcome back to the program. Thanks, Jay. Always good to be with you. So first off, what are your thoughts on this outline to return to masking at San Diego Unified Schools? Taking the precautions is very reasonable. We don't have that many things that we can do. Uh, You know, young children, we don't have vaccines approved. In older children, the vaccines haven't been used enough. The masks, uh, regular masks are not so great. Uh, We need, of course, higher quality masks like KN95s, KN94s, which would be useful. But at this point, there's been so much complacency and not enough will to prevent the viral infections. Because as you well know, These cases are infections that beget more infections and, in some cases, hospitalizations, uh, in rare cases, deaths. But most importantly, now we're seeing much more worries about long COVID from these cases and, of course, the nurturing of more variants to come. Some health experts have suggested that we may be in the midst of a hidden wave uh, where actual cases are much higher than what's being reported. What are your thoughts on that? Well, it's not a hidden wave, uh, Jay. This is overt. Uh, The only reason it's the sense of it being less than it really is, is because there's so few tests that are being done. But even with the tests that are being done, you know, yesterday we had 140,000. Last week we had days of 200,000. We're averaging well over 110,000 of confirmed cases. But if you look at the testing at home or the lack of testing, you should multiply that by at least sevenfold. So we're at a million cases per day easily right now, which takes us to the second largest wave since the beginning of the pandemic. The only one being worse was Omicron original, the so-called BA1 variant. So this is not a good time. This is not a hidden wave. This is a real deal wave. And it's something that we should be taking very seriously. And you mentioned our immune systems may not recognize these variants. Do the vaccines recognize it? Well, that's the key, is that whether you had an infection, whether it's Omicron, especially since it's so narrow, our response to BA1 Omicron is limited to that particular BA1. So it doesn't really work if you've been unvaccinated to this the current uh, issue of BA2, BA2121, and on and on. Now, if you've been vaccinated, the problem there is, again, we're seeing cracks in our immune protection. That is a vaccine-induced immune response. It's not as strong. It's not holding up as well. It's not to blame the vaccines. With boosters, they've done exceptionally well, better than what anyone could have predicted. It's the virus that's accelerating its evolution. You know, it's a commonly held belief that the more a virus mutates, the more mild its symptoms become. Is that entirely true here? Well, that's not only a belief, it's a myth. It's wrong. So yesterday, there was a new report that the people that BA2 were worse off in terms of their symptoms and their effects on their daily life than the people with BA1. And even more dramatic from that was when we went from alpha variant to delta, 
it got much more virulent or causing much more disease. So it's totally wrong to think that as the virus evolves, it gets less severe. No, we already have two good lines of evidence that it got worse and it could get worse over time. So no, that that needs to be busted, that myth that it's just going to burn out and it's just going to be like a common cold. It's unpredictable, Jade. And that's what we have to keep in mind. That's why we need to pull out all the stops and get nasal vaccines and a pan-coronavirus vaccine and better medications beyond just Paxlovid and what we have right now, because we don't have any assurance that this is going to get more mild over time. As you mentioned earlier, Pfizer just announced uh, that three doses of their vaccine would offer strong protection to children under five. What do you make of this announcement and why has it taken so long to develop a vaccine for this age group? Well, Pfizer in their press release said it's 80% reducing infections. That's very high because we're talking about Omicron infections. That's higher than what we've seen in adults when it's more like 50%. So it's good, whether that's because it was three shots, because it's already in a way building in the booster, that may be it. And it was a slightly higher dose than Moderna used with their two-shot program. But we haven't seen the data. So, you know, it's really hard to know. We're just working from basically a press release, which is of course, limited. As far as why is it taking so long? It's much harder to do vaccine trials in in young children, of course. You've got to have the parents that are willing to uh, get the children consented and to follow these children with uh, repeat tests to see whether or not they become infected. It's logistically difficult. And we're seeing all the vaccine trials take longer now. Like, for example, the Omicron booster vaccine program. We're not even going to have that earliest to July. So all the vaccine trials that are being conducted now are taking longer than the initial one. You know, summer is almost here and and likely to increase the number of people traveling across the country. What advice would you give to people looking to travel over the next few months? Number one is get boosted. That's really important if you haven't, because You just don't want to get this virus if you can avoid it. And if you've had it before, you don't want to get it again. Second thing is if you're traveling and if you're in public places like airports and flying and other gatherings indoors, wear a mask, high quality mask, because it will help. Uh, And, you know, if you can avoid uh, crowds, uh, that's great. You know, staying outside as much as possible is is really helpful. And, you know, rapid tests uh, are really useful, but they're not perfect because you can have a rapid test and be in a room that everyone's had a rapid test and be negative. But unfortunately, that room may have false negatives or people who became positive after their rapid test was done. So don't rely on them completely for making decisions. They're helpful, but they're not 100%. And earlier you mentioned that COVID is evolving at an accelerated pace. Is that normal? Well, the first year we didn't see hardly any evolution of the virus. And with Alpha and Delta, as you may recall, we never had these subvariants. You know, basically it was Alpha or Delta. But now with Omicron, we're not only having subvariants, but they're taking the spread, the contagiousness, amping it up more and more. This is really troubling. That is that we're seeing variants emerge of the current Omicron that are worse than Omicron. And it's happening pretty quickly. So that just shows you that we have so many paths to get these worse variants that we shouldn't be at all glib about where this is headed. We could certainly see things that are more transmissible, more immune escape, more challenging for our vaccines. This is far from a pandemic state that's uh, 
you know, in a contained zone, that's what we should be striving for. We should be really pushing for zero COVID deaths, which is attainable, but we're just not taking this with the kind of aggressiveness and going for the innovations we need to get ahead of the virus rather than constantly saying, staying behind. So this is not typical of how any virus we've ever seen has behaved. No, we're headed to one of the most transmissible pathogens in history, measles. You know, the RO for the current variant is around 16, measles 18. That's the mo- one of the most contagious things we've ever seen. So this isn't good. And the, the chance for the virus to continue to evolve is certain. And there's just too many ways for it to get there. So we need to get better things out there like nasal vaccines and vaccines that are protective against all variants. We can do this, but there just hasn't been the will. And we have a Congress that is refusing to allocate additional funds, uh, making believe that COVID is over when that couldn't be further from the truth. I've been speaking with Dr. Eric Topol, director of the Scripps Research Translational Institute in La Jolla. Dr. Topol, thanks again for speaking with us today. Thank you, Jane. If you need to communicate with someone online but want to keep it secret, an app called Signal is a good bet. It's fully encrypted, meaning messages can't be downloaded or shared. But what happens when government employees start using it? KPBS investigative reporter Claire Tregesser examines how officials might be using Signal to circumvent the public's right to know. Just after noon on a Monday last June, two city council staffers had a text exchange. So nice to meet you today. I'm shocked you're a campaign person. Jared Miller-Sklar wrote to Caitlin Willoughby. I know I am young, but if I am following in your footsteps, that is definitely a great sign because you have done some great things, Willoughby responded. Then Miller-Sklar gave his junior colleague some advice. Download the messaging app Signal. Def download Signal. It's preferable for me for communicating about campaign slash work stuff or, of course, just the tea, he wrote. The California Public Records Act says most communications about government business must be available to the public. So if Miller Sklar is sending work messages via Signal, those messages are very likely public records. But when KPBS asked to see them, he said he didn't have any. There should be policies in place um, preventing them from using Signal to conduct government business. This raises bright red flags for Shayla Nathu, a lawyer with the open government advocacy group Californians Aware. It's a means of like avoiding disclosure to the public under the CPRA. It's like um, it, it kind of flies in the face of like transparency and government accountability. She's also deeply troubled by a signal setting that permanently deletes messages after 30 seconds. After they're deleted, there's no record um, of that communication on either the actual device um, or or on a server. And that that renders a search for public records. um, It it renders that impossible. Miller-Sklar declined to do an interview for this story, but answered questions by email. He said people in his office do use Signal, but not for government business and not during work hours. However, in his text to Willoughby, Miller-Sklar specifically mentions work stuff. And he sent those messages just after noon on a Monday. 
Records show other staffers in Campillo's office also use Signal. They frequently wrote things like, just texted you on Signal. Yeah, I'll send it to you on Signal. Or once, putting this here to send on Signal because, good lord, this was wild. San Diego County Supervisor Nathan Fletcher's office also uses Signal constantly for communication about government business, from a staffer asking for the office key code to talking points for Fletcher's State of the County speech. Fletcher's office provided all those Signal messages in response to a KPBS public records request. They could have a clear, bright line which says if you're doing public business, do it on the public agency's own system. David Loy is the legal director of the First Amendment Coalition. He's troubled by the widespread use of Signal by Fletcher's team, even though they are open about it. But he's even more concerned by Campillo's office. The execution operation of the Public Records Act does depend to a large degree on agency good faith, and the California Supreme Court presumed that agencies would act in good faith. And if they are not, that in fact, that undermines and defeats the purpose of the entire system of open government. A bigger issue is the public wouldn't know about government signal use without evidence like what KPBS obtained, emails and text messages that specifically mention the app. Nathu, with Californians Aware, joked, it's like Fight Club. I feel like first rule of using signal as a public official should be don't mention that you use signal. <laughs> Joining me is KPBS investigative reporter Claire Tregesser. And Claire, welcome. Thank you. Now, continuing with that Fight Club reference, they do talk about using Signal. So doesn't that indicate that they are not trying to hide anything? Sure. Well, I mean, they talk about using Signal amongst themselves in email and communication that we got through a Public Records Act request. So you're right, they talk about it, but I don't know that they were anticipating um, the public really seeing that. So maybe not exactly the way that Fight Club is, but um, amongst themselves they're talking about it, but I don't think they meant to be talking about it publicly. Okay. So does the California Public Records Act define a bright line between what constitutes work communication as opposed to private communication? Or is it murky? Well, the open government advocates would say there is a bright line and it's very broad and vast. It's any communication that has to do with anything about government business is a public record, whether you're doing it on a personal phone, personal email, and, and courts have supported that. So if two government employees just wanted to talk about their reactions to a meeting they were in, would that be public information? Um, yes, it would. And, and in fact, that's come up in, in the past in the history of San Diego, where it was clear that um, city council members were texting each other during meetings and, and uh, news organizations requested those texts. And yes, that is public information. Well, let's talk about the two different ways this app was used by public agencies in your report. When you requested them, the city council staffer says his signal emails were not available. Why weren't they? Well, he is trying to maintain that those signal messages don't have to do with government business. And so then they aren't subject to the Public Records Act request. So, you know, you say, give me all of your government related or work related signal messages. And he says, I don't have any because, you know, I haven't been communicating about work on signal, even though I have a text message from him where he says, 
use Signal, it's preferable for communicating about work stuff. And he was sending it in the middle of the day on a Monday. So, you know, that's that's arguable. But that's why he said that that he didn't have any. And and keeping those emails private, that potentially keeps the public from access they should have. Is that right? That's right. And and the thing that um, is, you know, scares these advocates is there really isn't a way to know. It's the public needs to trust the government officials saying, yes, we've given you everything that we have because on Signal it's encrypted. And so, you know, you really actually wouldn't know uh, if they had messages that they were keeping from the public. On the other hand, County Supervisor Nathan Fletcher's office willingly gave you access to their Signal app communications. It, and it sort of leaves you wondering, why would they be using an encrypted app in the first place? Right. Well, I mean, you know, we should say that Signal is a really good messaging app. It's uh, very clean. It's easy to make groups. It's easy to reply to messages. People sometimes just really like the the functionality of it. And so, you know, that could be why they are using it. So in reference to what David Loy with the First Amendment Coalition told you, is it likely that the use of Signal could come up in a legal action against a public agency for not complying with the Public Records Act? Yeah, it's possible. And I think that one thing that he really stressed and wants to work on is that the Public Records Act is very clear. What's not clear are uh, retention policies. So how long records actually have to be kept. One thing that came out of this story is talking to the county. They said that they're making changes about the way that they review technology. It seems like they don't have, um, you know, quite uh, as as clear of a policy as maybe the city does. Um, so it seems like you know, updating policies and the ways that county employees are able to communicate um, might come out of that. I've been speaking with KPBS investigative reporter Claire Tregesser. And Claire, thank you. Thank you. Preschool students are expelled and suspended at rates three times higher than kids in K-12 schools. It's a problem California lawmakers are trying to address with a new bill that would ban the practice that disproportionately impacts black children. From the California Report, Deepa Fernandez says some early educators are already addressing the issue inside the classroom. Matthew is a bubbly and sweet kid. Say peace. Peace. But there are times when Matthew, like most preschoolers, is hard to deal with, says his mom. Denise Wilson of Compton. He doesn't have any boundaries. He's very kind of in your face. Matthew was constantly getting into trouble at preschool. All the teachers really were having a lot of issues with uh, Matthew's behavior. And they didn't want me to bring him at a certain time during nap time because he'll disturb the classroom. And then this happened. Hey, Deepa, this is Denise. Matthew had an incident and he threw a chair and he was suspended from school. Suspension or expulsion from preschool happens way more to black children than others. Federal civil rights data shows that pre-pandemic, black three- and four-year-olds made up just 18% of all public preschoolers, yet they were almost half of all those suspended. Behaviors communication. Suspending preschoolers with behavioural issues or punishing them 
is not the solution, says Dr. Marie Connie Paulson, chief psychologist at Children's Hospital Los Angeles. What his communication is saying is for some reason he can't cope with the expectations and he needs help. Dr. Paulson believes that many early educators simply don't have the training to know how to deal with challenging behaviours. It needs to be part of the pre-service training of teachers. Training preschool teachers to work with children with challenges is the mission of Linda Brolt, a child behaviour expert with WestEd, an education equity organisation. And their difficulty with behaviour is just as similar as, I don't know how to read. We wouldn't say, sit in the corner with those books until you know how to read. But we do that to kids. You sit in the corner until you know how to play with kids. And that's not logical. Teachers want to help, Brolt says. They've just never been taught about the challenges some kids face and why punitive measures won't work. It's not magic in the moment. It's all the things you've done ahead of time. It's the relationships you've built. So that when you see a child that is escalating and is going to have an explosion of strong emotions, you have strategies that you've taught him or the other children. Do you see yours in It's exactly the philosophy used at a preschool housed on the campus of Grossmont College in San Diego, where most of the children come from low-income families. When he was yelling at me. You were mad at who when they were yelling at you? This preschool has worked hard in its two decades to make sure every child is met where they're at, Meharan says. She points out one little boy who her staff identified early as having challenging behaviour and seems a little unaware of his body bumping into other kids. As I stand there with the kids, he suddenly reaches out and hits the little girl next to him. Ow! Yeah! Be gentle with me. Did you catch the teacher's response? She said, tell him, be gentle with me. And the little girl repeats that to the boy and she wanders off, apparently mollified. If you discipline a child while their brain is not able to think and process, you're not helping the child learn how to self-calm. In this moment, punishment can make a child angrier, she says. The teachers have a calming kit or a solution kit, and there's some fidgeting toys and things like that in there just to kind of help them re-engage with their thinking brain. The bill to ban suspensions only applies to publicly funded preschools. Meharan hopes that all preschools will replace harsh discipline with strategies that help children learn to deal with their big feelings. I'm Deepa Fernandez. That was from Pacific Oaks College Early Childhood Reporting Fellow Deepa Fernandez. Her position is funded in part by First Five LA. KPBS On Demand is supported by Under the Sun Foundation, presenting the Candlewood Arts Festival in Borrego Springs, featuring temporary public art projects that engage community and place. March 23rd. More at candlewoodartsfestival.org. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Cavanaugh. The Voting Rights Act of 1965 was a landmark piece of legislation prohibiting racial discrimination at the polls. But its impacts go far beyond just increased access to the ballot box. The legislation also played a significant role in lowering economic inequality between black and white Americans. Recent efforts from the U.S. Supreme Court, though, 
have begun to erode some of those gains. That's according to new research from our next guest, Carlos Fernando Avenancio Leon, assistant professor of finance at UC San Diego's Rady School of Management. Carlos, welcome to Midday Edition. Thank you for the invitation. We'll start in 2013 with this conversation. That's when one piece of the Voting Rights Act was struck down by the U.S. Supreme Court. What was that provision and what impact has that change had? So the Voting Rights Act had a key provision that helped prevent the passage of voting laws at the state level that restricted the right to vote. That provision was Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act, and that provided what is called a preclearance requirement. That is that the federal government had oversight power over state voting state laws to ensure that they were not discriminatory. So basically, Section 5, which is the important section, was made ineffective by the decision in 2013 by the Supreme Court. In your research, you and your co-author Abe Aneja from UC Berkeley focus on the 1965 Voting Rights Act. Tell us more about the impacts of that piece of legislation. Yes. So what Abe and I show is that following the passage of the Voting Rights Act in 1965, you start seeing a convergence in wage between white and black workers. Uh, That black worker wages increased by 5.5% relative to uh, white wages which meant that there was a decrease in the gap of about 20% roughly from the overall convergence used we started seeing in in black wages from the 60s to the 80s. That's a a key important gain. And the way this happened is because by having additional political empowerment, you start seeing pressure in the decisions that politicians are taking, these decisions including changes in the public sector employment, changes in the way civil rights regulations was being enforced, making them more effective. And the pressure that these changes in the public sector work have put pressure on private sector wages as well, because these private sector are, are competing during that time for workers with the public sector. So you see all these things happening that generate this narrowing of the gap in wages for black workers. And why do you think this economic aspect is so important to really fully understanding the Voting Rights Act? So there's like two key points when we're thinking about voting rights. The direct point we always think about is by having more ability to generate, to have an impact on the politicians we are choosing, we are choosing a set of policy priorities that we, we may prefer. That may be minimum wage, that may be many other things. But there's a, what we are showing goes beyond that. There's an effect of having a political empowerment changes the incentives of the politicians even if you are not choosing the politicians that you want, even if you're not choosing the policy priorities that you want, because the politicians start behaving differently. And that ability to change the incentives is critical. So what we start seeing is once we have the Voting Rights Act passed, even conservative politicians in the South start supporting more civil rights regulation and more progressive regulation that they would do otherwise. So you start seeing a change in the overall behavior of politicians in a way that benefited minority constituents. So the fact having voting power is not only important because it allows you to choose the policies that that you want, but also because it changes the incentives of the politicians that are in power, especially at the local level. Hmm. What drew you to research voting rights? I mean, do you have a personal connection to the issue? I do. I do. So I come from Puerto Rico, and Puerto Rico is one of the largest episodes of current disenfranchisement we have right now in the United States. Typically, the discussion about Puerto Rico revolves about 
the relationship with the status, the status that we have with the United States. But we ignore that beyond the status, Puerto Ricans are U.S. citizens that are not allowed to vote. So this is a disenfranchisement event that goes way beyond that just the problem of status. And we see that in situations like when we had the Hurricane Maria, we saw the reaction of the federal government was well below what the reaction of the federal government has been for other natural disasters that happen in the mainland U.S. So what we start seeing and what I saw growing up person is that the incentive of federal politicians are not the same that they are in the mainland just because the right to vote doesn't exist. Now, bringing us back to 2013, how big were the economic impacts of the Supreme Court's decision limiting the Voting Rights Act? And how long did it take for those to actually appear in your data? So in a different story, Abe and I started evaluating what happened following the case in 2013. And I'd like to remark, we still haven't seen the full effects of that decision. Every year that passes, there's more restrictions on voting. What the general effect that we will see in this is still unknown. But there's a few things that we, we already know. So we, we wrote this study about the effects of disenfranchisement, the effect of Shelby County versus Holder, in 2019. And by 2019, you start seeing that wages for Black workers in the public sector start reducing, so especially for new hires. In 2020, following the election, and all the way to 2021, we start seeing many more state bills that are restricting the right to vote. By in February 2021, the Brennan Center had documented that there were 28 state laws in place, over 160 bills in place that were intended to restrict the right to vote. So the effects that we that we already started documenting that are happening, that are decreasing the wages for Black workers in the public sector, are going to keep increasing over time as many of these bills become law. Mm. And, and, you know, what would you like to see happen as a result of this research? The optimal solution here is having the John Lewis uh, Voting Rights uh, Advancement Act passed in Congress. So the, it was passed in the House, and because there are no 60 votes uh, for the passage of the bill, it hasn't been enacted into law yet. Something else that we need is we need to generate more protections of the right to vote at the local level as well, because we cannot rely only on the federal government or the Supreme Court to protect the rights uh, of minorities. Many of the tools that were available after 2013 are being also taken out of the toolbox to protect voting rights. We need more political organization, more activist organization at the local level. We need action at the federal level. That's the way we can actually try to empower minorities in a way that we can protect their economic decisions. I've been speaking with Carlos Fernando Avenancio Leon, Assistant Professor of Finance with UC San Diego's Ready School of Management. Carlos, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org.